Welcome to the Divorce Survival Guide Podcast, where we have open and honest conversations about co-parenting, separation, divorce, and the hardest question of all, should you stay or should you go? I'm Kate Anthony, your Divorce Survival Guide, and I'm here to help you navigate some of the roughest waters you've ever swum in and answer some of your toughest questions. I've been to hell and back. And now it's my mission in life to help you get to the other side of this process with your sanity and your heart intact. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Divorce Survival Guide podcast. I have been so excited to bring you this guest for so long. Many of you know her, Katie Thompson, also known as Katie Thompson Branson, is a member of our Facebook group. Should I stay or should I go on Facebook? Link in the show notes. And she has been such a wonderful help and asset, just an incredible asset to the group to have a licensed therapist in there, um, sort of picking up the therapy ball. You know, I'm a coach and there's a difference between coaching and therapy. Uh, both are incredibly important aspects um, of someone's um, mental health and, and uh, personal development, uh, but they do very different things. And so having Katie's voice in our Facebook group has been absolutely invaluable. Um, and her generosity in lending her voice in there has been just incredible. One of the conversations that we have had, uh, we had in a, it was in a thread somewhere a while ago about how to, how to choose a therapist. Like, how do you find a good therapist? Because not all therapists are good. Just because they're therapists does not mean they actually are good or have the advanced training necessary to be able to help you in specific and particular areas. So um, in this episode, Katie and I are going to talk about all of that. So um, let me just give you a little rundown about who Katie is. So Katie Thompson... L-P-C-C-E-D-S, is a psychotherapist in private practice in St. Louis, Missouri. Katie specializes in treating eating disorders, anxiety disorders, PTSD, and complex trauma, and has a special interest in treating binge eating disorders. Actually, I first came across Katie on Facebook. This is how we became friends and how she ended up in our group was I found her through um, eating disorder stuff. <laughs> Someone had shared something that she wrote about eating disorders and I had shared it and then I started following her and that's how we came to be together. But anyway, Katie is skilled in implementing DBT, CBT, IFS, ERP, EMDR, EFT, and group therapy. So if you want to know what all of those things are, you should probably Google them. Um, Katie is trained in EMDR, um, exposure and response prevention, and has earned her certification in internal family systems level two. In private practice, Katie balances individual, family, couples, and group therapy with supervising provisionally licensed therapists. Katie is also a current member and the past board president of the Missouri Eating Disorders Association, the board of directors, and is a past member of the Binge Eating Disorder Association board of directors. Katie can be seen in local media appearances and lecturing regionally and nationally on her areas of specialty. Katie is married and has a daughter, a bonus daughter, and a bonus son. She has been part of her blended family since 2011 and is familiar with the complexities that come with living in a blended family as a spouse, bio-parent, and step-parent. 
Katie specializes in clinical intervention within blended family systems in her specific areas of expertise. So I read, I read you all of that <laughs> because this is what we're talking about in this episode. We're talking about, about finding therapists who have specializations in what you are dealing with and who have had advanced training in what you're dealing with. And so all of her expertise, all of her information and just her wealth and wealth of wisdom uh, and compassion and integrity. And I just adore her. And we are so lucky to have her here. So please help me welcome. Give a big round of applause in your car or doing your dishes or whatever you're doing <laughs> for Katie Thompson. Katie Thompson. I am so fucking excited to have this conversation with you. Finally. Me too. Thanks for inviting me. Um, I think it was, I found you after my eating disorder sort of bottoming out. Um, and then we became friends and now we're like really friends yeah, and colleagues <laughs> and colleagues and colleagues, which is, which is just Awesome. I agree. You know, we start, I think we started this conversation because we really, really wanted to talk about what people need to look for in a therapist. And I think that you and I are on the same page in our, in our understanding and agreement that just because someone's a therapist or has the letters MFT, LMFT, you know, LCSW, whatever, after their names does not make them a good or be um, the right therapist for you and what you're going through. Exactly. Right? 100%. Yes. So the first thing we want to talk about is, oh my God, how do you pick a, how do you pick a therapist? And I think there, there are a bunch of layers to this, right? One of them is that we can, I guess, talk about, sort of weave it through is like, you know, health insurance. Correct. <laughs> right? Because, um, but like, how do you... You know, most people, I think a lot of women in um, my Facebook group, which you are also in and such a valuable resource um, in, but so many women just think like, oh, well, someone said that they're, you know, that I should go to this therapist. So I am. And they don't really know what they're looking for. I think that's a, a huge issue across all professions. I would say the same thing yeah. about uh, physicians. Um you know, right. surgeons finding uh, an attorney. That's a huge thing for people that are actually oh, yes. there in your group too, finding the right attorney. Yes. Um, we could have a whole yes. podcast about that as well. Um, yeah. But you are yeah. right, Kate, there's so many layers to it. And in today's managed care world and the reality of the expense of the expense of care, health insurance is a big issue. And in some regional areas, there are a ton of clinicians that don't take insurance don't have to take insurance because they can survive without doing that financially because there's enough people that come to them that aren't using insurance. Or there are clinicians like me who take a few panels, who are on a few panels, and then take um, out-of-pocket pay or out-of-network clients. So a big layer of this is going to your insurance company, finding out what your benefits are, making sure you know and understand what those benefits are, and then finding out who within your benefits is a good fit 
um, among the other layers that we're going to discuss. Yes. Okay. So that's, that's the first, I mean, that's really the first place to start, right? I would agree. Find out if you can afford out of pocket, if that becomes a necessity. And another thing to ask, if you know that you don't have insurance or you can't afford a full fee, another thing to do is to call a therapist and ask them if they take a sliding fee or if they do any pro bono work. Cause most therapists do have a sliding fee and some therapists do pro bono work. Yes. Yes. I know that like my therapist, my, my former therapist did that for me for, for a while when I was, she was my eating disorder therapist and she was so good and I could not afford it. And she was like, yeah, we can't stop now. Right. right. (laughs) That happens more frequently than a lot of people would like to admit that either you lose your benefits or something happens or a financial situation changes and someone's in the middle of resolving trauma or recovering from an eating disorder. And most therapists will not just say, okay, you have to go somewhere else. They'll say, here's the time frame for which I can work on this with you pro bono or at a reduced rate. Right. Yes. Yes. So, okay. So once you've established, I mean, essentially you're going to find out if you have benefits and then you're going to find, you're going to get your list of like, well, okay, then who's in my network? Right. And then you've got, and this is, I mean, this is what we deal with with everything. This is what I'm dealing with with my dentist. Right. And then, then you have this list of names and you're supposed to suddenly somehow find out if this person, uh, well, first of all, will take you. Right. So that's the first step. Like, are they taking new patients? But beyond that, then you've got to start doing some research. So absolutely. Let's talk about that. Okay. So this is what I would say for every single person in any field of work, you have to find out who is kind of doing the uh, kind of state of the art work in their field or who has a good reputation. Um, Word of mouth referrals are really great. Sometimes with the nature of therapy, people don't talk about the fact that they're in therapy, so that can be difficult. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think if you literally have no clue where to start, I would start doing research online and Google, you know, names of therapists locally and the issue that you know that you need to work on. So if we're talking about um, women in our group who are either going through a divorce or are having extreme marital conflict or dissatisfaction in their marriage, they might need a couple of different things. They might be looking for an individual therapist. They might be looking for a couples therapist. So let's just start with a couples therapist. How do you find a good couples therapist? And I'm going to say with the first layer that we talked about, many, many, many couples therapists do not take health insurance because by and large, health insurance companies do not reimburse appropriate amounts of fees for the work that goes into providing couples therapies. Mm. So if people run up against that, that is common. Um, So in fact, many insurance companies reimburse um, a percentage lower than they do for individual therapy. And so because there's so much involved and so much training involved in becoming a good, effective couples therapist, many couples therapists don't take insurance. So that's something to keep in mind. Second thing is you want to make sure that because your marriage or your relationship, your partnership is something that's so important to you, you don't want to just throw that into the hands of someone who doesn't have advanced training. You want to look for advanced training. And a good rule of thumb is to remember that what we learn in graduate school 
to become a therapist is a primer. It's not really designed for us to leave the doors of the brick and mortar institution with our degree in hand. We have to do licensure hours. Usually that takes about two to three years for most people under the supervision of someone else. And then beyond that, very few people have the skill set leaving graduate school to open up shop and become a therapist and do this work without any supervision, consultation, or um, advanced training. So when you're searching for a couples therapist, you want to make sure that they have training in advanced couples interventions models, and that they've done a multitude of training. So they don't rely on one skill set. Right. So what does that mean? Yeah. What does that mean? Like, what are they looking for? Like, it's one thing to be like, do you have advanced training? So, and obviously every single therapist has their own bias in terms of like, oh, I'm trained in these models and I use these models because, so I'm going to own that I'm speaking from my bias and that I'm going to speak from the models that I'm trained in, but I can also give you kind of a a place for people to start to do research. So for me, um, one of the tried and true long-term couples interventions is the Gottman method. And that was the first couples family therapy method I was trained in. Um, I trained while I was working in a treatment center for eating disorders, and I had these amazing supervisors that were willing to bring in state-of-the-art trainers and trainings to us and provide this, and then provide a supervision and consultation. Um, So for years, I went through and did that training under other people. And then I was also given the opportunity to utilize those skills with the families and the clients that I was working with. So Gottman Gottman is is one of those methods, methods that is really a goal to create closeness and intimacy in the relationship and to work out the resentments that have built over time Mm -hmm. and eventually lead the couple back to respect and admiration in the relationship. And they, you learn to manage conflicts rather than trying to fix each other, fix the problems and stop getting bogged down in conflict and resentment, which builds like this scaffold of disconnection in the relationship. Yes. And just, you know, Gottman is, I mean, he's basically the godfather of, mm-hmm. of couples work. Well, that's what I always call him, right? Like I was called like Mod- modern day. Yes. I yes. Mean, for the last 30 years and he, there's a Gottman Institute. Yes. You can train on, there's Gottman therapists all over. Yeah. In my office alone, there's two of us that are trained yeah. in Gottman method. And, um, and he's the only person modern day, as you say, to have studied relationships scientifically in his lab. He has a lab for this, right? Which you know, the, yeah. the, the science geek in me is like, yes. <laughs> like, <laughs> right. So you're talking about kind of, instead of doing research separate, you know, analyzing things in short-term studies, there's a lab that he's used and collected data on and published. On yeah. That. And when we say lab, we, we literally mean that there are people that go and spend a weekend as if they're in their home. Like it has like a living room and a kitchen and a bedroom and all of that. Right. And then they put, they, do they have electrodes on them? I thought they'd have like, like, are they monitoring their, right? I I don't actually know about those details. There is another group that in the past studied relationship interactions in that manner. And it was Masters and Johnson that Mm -hmm. were at the Mm -hmm. U. Um, sex clinic. Um, Actually, the individuals that I, some of my mentors and that I study under both worked for Masters and Johnson way back in the day. Um, They were like, and so they do, 
they do sensate focus work uh-huh. where that's helping couples work with sexual dysfunction, um, treat sexual dysfunction, and then work through sexual dysfunction within the relationship from an intimacy standpoint. Yes. It's me. So it gets me, I get like all geeked out about it. And so, okay. So Gottman being sort of one method or one advanced training that you highly recommend. I also highly recommend. And the beautiful thing about Gottman is that he's written a bunch of books that are like for the lay person that are like, you know, for couples, for people to just, you know, learn about relationships. So what are your, what are your top recommendations of those? So here's what I would say to you about, um, before you dive into the books, Uh um, Gottman is one of those, uh, clinical approaches and clinicians that, um, before you even, you don't even have to buy a bunch of books. And I think that's one of the things that overwhelms Uh clients is that when they go into therapy, their therapist is like, okay, read this book, read this book, read this book. I would say just start by researching, you know, his relationship institute. There's so many online. Oh, so much. Uh, I would start with the online, yeah. and then ultimately, there's the book that's one of the Bibles of the Gottman theory, which is the seven principles of, you know, for making a marriage work. Mm-hmm. And that has been uh, written and re-edited. Um, I think the verse book was like late '90s, and it was re. Another edition came out in maybe 2015 or 16. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there's really a lot. And there's then so there's books on the science of trust where they go into the evidence around how to build uh, relational trust within all different types of relationships, but really in the romantic mm-hmm. relationships. So there's so much. There's so much research articles and actual uh, books. So I would start with the seven principles. That's sort of, that is sort of like the true blue, right? That's sort of the, yeah. Oh, what I was going to say about their website is that they have like little videos that are like really small snippets, like cartoony things that are just really easily digestible. Absolutely. And they love their diagrams and (laughs) they love their metaphors, which works for people Uh because it's palatable. Uh So it takes this upper echelon research and cognitive clinical language and it boils it down into day-to-day familiar language that everybody can consume, which is one of the things that makes Gottman so usable, user-friendly, and clients love it. Mm-hmm. Therapists love it, clients love it, and it works. Yep. So um, that's absolutely one of the, the methods that I would recommend uh, that individuals, women who are looking for a couples therapist for them and their partner, um, they will look into a Gottman trained therapist. I think the second model for me that I am, it's actually become as important, if not more important Mm -hmm. to me than Gottman is EFT Mm. therapy, uh, which stands for emotionally focused therapy. Um, It is another modern approach. It's um, a humanistic approach uh, to couples psychotherapy that relies heavily on the science of attachment theory Mm -hmm. to help a couple, a partnership, identify the dysfunctional cycle that they end up in within their relationship. And it's really powerful. I went to the training two years ago. Um, It was a, a game changer for me as a clinician and a game changer as someone who exists in a relationship. Yeah, that sounds great. So what's that? What is that? Well, so attachment theory, which is we've we've done a podcast on it, so we can refer back to previous yeah. episodes. But just sort of like what's the basics of of EFT? So it's attachment theory, which is essentially right. Right. How, how we relate 
how we come together and how we fall apart. So the theory of attachment is that we all learn how to love and be loved based on the ways that we were raised and treated in our most significant relationships. So for most of us, that's our mom and dad. Mm -hmm. And for some of us, sometimes that's extended family members. Um, It can be, you know, someone else that's raised us or significant people like coaches or teachers. But for the most part, it's parents. And at the end of the day, the way that we're treated, the things that happen, good, bad, traumatizing, they teach us how to function in relationships and then teach us patterns of relating. And from a schema therapy standpoint, really, if there are maladaptive things that happen repeatedly in our familial relationships through our developmental process, we develop something called an early maladaptive set of schemas that help us navigate and survive in our relationships. Early maladaptive schemas are the same it's just different language for attachment strategies. So the theory is that EFT takes the understanding of attachment, the science of attachment theory, and applies it to how we come together and fall apart in our relationships and what we have to own, what our partner has to own, and how we create a unique unique cycle between the two of us in the relationship mm-hmm. that either keeps us together or our forces us to fall apart and dysfunction. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, I start thinking about it and I'm just like, oh God, we're all so fucked up. <laughs> you know, like, well, here's the good news. Ugh. Everybody has dysfunction yeah. and we all can, we can choose to or not to deal with it. And yes. the more work we put into, uh, healing our attachment injuries and the ruptures we create in relationships, the more value we're going to get out of all of our relationships, whether it's our romantic relationships, our parenting relationships. And one thing I always tell my clients when they get distressed about their current relationship and they feel like bolting or running away, I remind them, that's fine. You can do that. You can try to do this work, but whatever you're doing in this relationship that is a part of your cycle of dysfunction, if you don't work on it for yourself, whether you're working on it with you and your partner, you're going to reenact it and recreate it in any significant relationship you end up in. So whether that's with a new partner or with your children or with your bosses and your colleagues at work, yep. it, it's all about reenactments, which we can talk about when it comes to trauma bonding. Yes, exactly. And, you know, and that's, you know, and that's, that's what I say all the time in my work, right? That, that that's why 50% of first marriages fail and 68% of second marriages and 74% of third marriages fail because we think it's the other person. We toss them out. We find another one. And then all the, the patterns repeat again because we're using the same picker. <laughs> we're using all the same relationship skills that had us, you know, end our first marriage, right? And if we don't mm-hmm. go in and heal those things for ourselves, he may have been an asshole, Right. Why did I pick that asshole? Right. Exactly. (laughs) You're basically you in beautiful language just broke down this whole idea of reenactment, which is this compulsion to repeat the trauma. Mm -hmm. It's really an attempt that all of us humans have to rework in the present relationship what we couldn't work out in our past relationships. So usually our parental relationships. And while it feels like you can't for women and men who are stuck in trauma bonds now, 
it feels like they can't leave him or her who they're acting out their trauma with. They're really trying not to leave the idea of fixing the problem. Right. Because if then you have to admit, oh my gosh, I couldn't fix the problem I contributed to. And it's really, the fear is, well, it's about me. So this is one of the reasons that people, when they're going through a divorce or an uncoupling is they end up blaming their partner because it's so much safer to blame them for the problems that to own, you know what, not only did this not work when I was a kid with my parents, now I'm recreating that in my current relationship. Amen, sister. Amen. Amen. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. All right. So we have Gottman, we have EFT. So again, I'm owning my bias here. I'm also trained in schema therapy and that is something that I use to inform my work with couples. Um, what is that? I use it to work. Cause I don't, I'm not from, that familiar with that. So schema therapy. So, you know, everybody talks about cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT mm-hmm. as if, if it's the end all be all of everything. And really what that comes down, there's a lot of things. That's a whole podcast. We don't have time to get into <laughs> it, but I like to say that CBT is an umbrella of therapies and there's all these other therapies that are offshoots of CBT. Mm-hmm. And so DBT, um, ERP, which is useful with people with anxiety disorders and OCD, which I'm trained in and I use all the time in my work. Um, uh, uh, Schema therapy is an example of a CBT, an offshoot of it, that was developed to work with people who have perpetual pathological relationship patterns. And then it's been modified to work with people with eating disorders, with couples, people with personality disorders. So it's another kind of newer modern therapy that's based in research. It's evidence-based. And and what's the sort of, what's the basic, it is, it is cognitive behavioral, right? Is what you're saying. So it it is about changing behaviors to maybe perhaps receive better feedback or more connections or, but it's sort of an, it's more of an outside in it's deeper. It's about changing your relational and behavioral patterns and looking at the things that you learned throughout your developmental period, the things that helped you survive maladaptive environments, which are then creating dysfunction in your day-to-day functioning and all of your relationships. So it helps you take ownership for patterns of behavior, understanding why they formed as a response to trauma or neglect or unmet needs, and then figuring out how those same things that kept you safe in childhood are now creating you, you, they're setting you up to create the things, the circumstances Mm -hmm. in your adult life that were most unfortunate in your childhood. So it's really a breakdown of reenactment. It's a trauma, it's a trauma resolution model and it's based in assessment and theory and there's a protocol and interventions. Okay. I want to do all these therapies now. I'll, I mean, I've done a lot of them, but now I want to do all of them again. I can't decide if I want to go to school and learn them or if I want to go (laughs) do them myself. Well, here's the thing I would say, since you're a brilliant reader and researcher and writer, I will say this to you. Once you've done a lot of therapy, it becomes like a ripple effect. Mm -hmm. And it's not difficult for you to pick up a book or read a couple journal articles and say, oh, this is what this is about. And then apply a lot of the uh, concepts into your own therapy that you're in currently with your therapist. And the majority of therapists who are functioning out there who have done that advanced training that we talked about being so necessary have either done some of this or they've done advanced training. Right, right. So 
not everybody is going to do advanced training and everything, but what you're looking for when you're looking for a couples therapist is someone that's done a couple of things. And some of them have trained in a lot of different models. And then they've also trained in trauma models for individual work that they apply to the understanding of the couple's work that they do. Right. Okay. So that's sort of, that's sort of like the, I guess those are the broad strokes of what people are looking for in a couple's therapist, right? Correct. Now who should not be in couple's therapy? Good question. So in the assessment phase and couple's therapy, what you're looking for your couple's therapist to be doing is they are, creating a relationship and a clinical bond and a a kind of a network with your relationship. They're not aligning with either partner of the dyad. So they are Mm -hmm. trying to assess and identify and create a bond with both and with the relationship. The relationship itself is the client, not either of the dyad, the partners of the dyad. So a couple of sessions in, so they'll probably do one, two or three sessions where it's the two of you. And then in an ideal situation, they're going to say, okay, it's time for me to meet with partner one for one to two sessions and partner two for one to two sessions. And in those individual sessions, they're looking for things that make the couple's work null and void. So one of those things is active abuse, um, physical um, complex emotional abuse or sexual abuse. Um, If the person, if any one of the partner is actively engaged in an affair and they have no willingness to step out of it, that's one thing. Mm -hmm. Um, An addiction process that they're not willing to look at or own up Mm -hmm. to is something where, you know, that person would need to be referred out uh, for individual therapy. And you're also looking for agendas, like someone who's trying to come in and make their spouse look bad or their partner look bad or make themselves look like the angel and them like the, um, the demon or the devil or the problem. And so the couples therapist is assessing for that. And then when they're brought together, the couples therapist will say, okay, these are the goals. This is what came out of this meeting and this meeting with each of the members of the dyad. And I see these are things that we need to work on and um, this is kind of how we, you know, move forward. So what a couples therapist needs to do is own that they're not going to, you know, align with any secrecy that's going on Mm. that would damage the relationship. Um, So ultimately that's a lot. And a lot of times what happens is people are stressed for financial reasons or they're so anxious to get moving and fix the problems that they're not patient enough to wait for that process to unfold. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, frankly, I'm going to be very frank with you, Kate, here. Couples therapists have no business doing couples therapy because they don't understand that they need to create safety within the relationship in this space and that they have to do that assessment on both sides of the dyad. Mm -hmm. And not everybody does it that way, but that's just the way my training has been. And the other thing that's really important is that um, a therapist who's been an individual therapist who one part of the dyad doesn't try to do uh, relational couples work, you know, shifting from one working with one partner to working with the relationship, because then there seems to be a lack of safety or bias in rare situations that can work. But by and large, that's kind of a rule of thumb. Like if I've worked with someone individual, if their partner ever comes into therapy and I'm working with them an individual, it's to support 
the work of the individual, not for couples work. Does that make sense? It, it does. And I think this is really, really, really important because there's an, there's, you know, this gets confused. Um, I see it all the time and you and I have talked about this um, and we've seen it in the group, right? Where someone says, mm-hmm. you know, that they're, that there's now, they're now seeing their husband's therapist for couples work. Or they're now seeing, you know, their therapist, they're doing couples work with their therapist, or each of them is seeing the, the therapist individually long-term and they're mm. doing couples work together. There are, and I just want to, you know, tread lightly here mm-hmm. because I think that there's all different schools of thought and training and all of this. And again, I'll own my bias. It's just my training, the reasons that I don't do these things. And I also have the privilege of working in one of the major metropolitan areas where there's a wealth of clinicians. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I can refer out. So in a rural area where there's one skilled clinician, sometimes that's the only option. And in those situations, the therapist who's doing the work has to be in consultation with people, whether they're in a national group where they're receiving consultation and they're getting supervision to make sure they don't step into any of the pitfalls that come up with creating dual relationships like that. Right. Okay. So there are situations where it's unavoidable and that tends to be in like rural areas or in areas where there's a limited of trained clinicians. I don't work in an area where that's the case, so I don't. Come so, how would it. you recommend? Because we do have a lot of, you know, I have a lot of people who listen to the podcast who are in those kinds of areas, and that may be true. I mean, I know I see a lot of a lot of women in the group certainly saying like, "There's no therapist for you know within 50 miles or whatever," and um, and so that's that is legitimate. How would you recommend someone actually acknowledge that and like have that conversation with their therapist? I think that they say, look, I've been doing research and I know what, you know, the recommendation of best practice is. And it seems like we're maybe blurring outside of those lines. And I want to understand your rationale for doing that without putting you on the defensive. Tell me why you've made this decision to do that. And then I would say that we are, because of technology, we are in a time and space where we actually have more access to expertise than ever before because of the dawn of, you know, internet therapy. Mm-hmm. And so while there are rules that govern who can practice where and how and all of that, there are plenty of clinicians that are trained that are doing internet therapy um, because it's a necessity. Yeah. So, um, and I think even some insurance plans are writing that into their plans so that their members can utilize those benefits. Now, um, I will tell you with uh, clients who need to do a lot of intense trauma resolution work where trauma exists in the body or Mm -hmm. they're working with um, things that are more somatic, uh, you can't do, you really can't do a whole lot of EMDR, which is a model, you know, that I'm trained in that I use on a regular basis uh, remotely, unless you're using light bars or um, the, you know, original methodology of um, the EMDR with the finger methodology. So the reality is, is that you just have to do research. And at the end of the day, you can ask people, find experts online and ask them what their opinion is. And then always ask for multiple people to give opinions and then go from there. Use your gut. What feels right? Yeah. 
And that's, and I think that's really important. So that's one of the things that I also want to talk about is that, and this is what I say for people looking for attorneys. It's what I say for people looking for therapists. It's what I say for people, you know, anything, right? (laughs) Is, is, Is that if you don't like the person, if you don't feel safe, if you don't feel comfortable, if there's anything in your gut and you're checking in and you're like, something doesn't feel right about this. You don't need to, you don't need evidence. You don't need to, um, right. Like trust yourself, trust yourself and your gut with that. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's why I always say, like, if I know, um, that someone is in the place where they're starting to think about what it would be like to get a divorce, I usually tell them you need to see three or four or five attorneys before you make up your Mm -hmm. mind. And when you go in there, it's so important that you authentically feel like they care about you and your story and they're going to fight for you. And if you have children, they're going to fight for the best interest of your children and be able to confront you when you're out of line. Yes. (laughs) These are things that are necessary because without that, and I, I really do feel from, you know, going through my own divorce and working with my partner on um, his renegotiation of his custody and seeing kind of the dark side of the family litigation oh system, it is deeply flawed. Yep. And the things that don't fly in criminal and civil litigation absolutely fly in family, yep. family litigation. And I think that, you know, you're working with people who good, bad, or otherwise, their livelihood depends on resolving or in some situations, extending the conflict that you have with the most important relationships of your life. And that is so mm-hmm. intense. Yes. So there, there isn't a time in your life that it is more important to pick the right professionals to have your back. And that includes picking the right therapist to work through that system with you. And what I found in a lot of court mandated clinical work is that these are oftentimes clinicians that don't practice in the general outpatient world. They get their referral sources through the courts and they haven't necessarily done a lot of this training that I just talked Mm -hmm. about. So, you know, I have, I own that I have some personal biases about that from experience. Well, I think your, all of your biases are, um, are welcome here. (laughs) Well, thanks Kate. (laughs) I, I share them. So <laughs> I got no issue with any of that. To try to own them when they exist. You do. You're very good at that. You're very good about that on all levels. I, I, one thing I appreciate about you. Let's shift a little bit and talk about something that you've mentioned a few times um, and that I've talked about before in the podcast. And I think in a very, in a very general way, my podcast, you know, cause I'm not a clinician and really I was telling my own story, but so let's talk about trauma bonds because okay. we see them all the time. Absolutely. <laughs> These are so common in culture. And obviously this is a spectrum thing. Yes. You know, the, the reasons trauma bonds are formed and the, the intensity of them, it's on, it exists on a continuum on a spectrum, but I'm just going to throw out some names there because I know everybody that listens to your podcast, these are bright, you know, lively minded individuals who love to do their own research and dig deeper. So I'm just going to put some names out there. So let's start with Patrick Carnes. He's the one who developed the term um, to describe what a trauma bond is. So he's written 
um, about it. And then there's Christine Courtois. Uh, you spell her name C-O-U-R-T-O-I-S. Um, she is a researcher, clinician, expert in the field of trauma. And then there's Peter Levine. Obviously, these are just three people. There's many people. Um, Bessel van der Kolk is another um, clinician who has worked extensively in trauma and trauma resolution. So all of those individuals have written books, have done, you can find them on YouTube, you can find them everywhere. So if you want to learn and educate yourself about this, the, one of the best places is to go to the experts. Great. So ultimately, um, basically trauma bonding is bonding. Let's back up a step. So in all relationships, healthy relationships, conflictual relationships, um, abusive relationships, we are bonded to the people that we experience events with, whether those events are positive or negative. And so the theory of trauma bonding is really that when there's a negative event with a person who's significant to us, whether that's a parent or a partner, we get bonded to them, even if the event was negative. So in the relationship of a parent-child dyad, I want you to think about this. A parent who loves and harms teaches the child to expect love and harm in all relationships. Yes, and they often conflate harm with love. Yes. Right. Yes, yes. absolutely. That, I think that is so, so primary, right? For so many of us, that's like front and center. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So, you know... Here's a, a caveat. In all healthy relationships, people make mistakes. They accidentally harm the people they love, whether it's their children, their parent, their spouse, their partner, their sister, their brother. We all accidentally cause harm. What is missing in an abusive relationship is that there's a compulsion around repeating that harm and there's a couple of components. So a person doesn't take responsibility for the harm that they've created. They often deny, mm -hmm. uh, mislead, gaslight. Yeah. Or if you bring to them, oh, you harmed me, they'll say, oh, you're harming me by bringing this to me. So they, <laughs> right. they punish you for bringing the harm to them or they make it unsafe to bring your needs, emotions, feelings, or desires into the relationship. So ultimately in cycles of abuse, a person who harms, harms on this continuum, they repeat it, it's compulsive. And then when it happens, they do a multitude of things to deal with it, whether they go into a phase of I'm so sorry, it will never happen again, or you blew this out of proportion, it's not what you thought it was, you're actually harming me because you're lying on me, you're the manipulator. So there's all sorts uh -huh, of things that happen. Uh -huh. But when we have a childhood history of being in emotionally abusive relationship, a relationship where our parent was supposed to physically or emotionally meet needs and they didn't, so aka neglect, or we've been in a sexually abusive relationship with a parent, they're setting us up to choose partners to basically reenact that with. Right. Right. And so reenactment is that compulsion to fix in the present what wasn't fixed in the past mm -hmm. with our parents or whoever our perpetrator right. was. And this is, and so, and this yeah. is sometimes also called an imago match, right? Which is maybe, I, I don't know that language. Oh, oh the imago. Kind of yeah. Sounds good. Yeah, <laughs> it is. I mean, that's basically what it is. It's like, it's a mirror, right? It's a, it's right. a mirror. Anyway, right. it doesn't matter. Right. I talk about imago a lot, but 
it's, um, yeah. yeah. Okay. So for me, when I'm working with individual clients or sometimes couples and they're in this dynamic of repeating unresolved childhood patterns with their current partner, what I will say to them is that, you know, your experience of being hurt, traumatized, abused, abandoned, or neglected has forced you to abandon your gut instincts. Uh-huh. And in the part of you that knows the difference between right and wrong and that knows the way you ought to be treated. And you're trying to fix what wasn't fixed in the past. So you're not attracted, holistically not attracted to your partner. You're drawn to them. And being drawn is when we are trauma bonded. We repeat old abuse dynamics in an attempt to rework in the present the things that were unresolved in the past. It can feel like attraction. It can look like attraction. It has an element of excitement, Mm -hmm. but it's also coupled with fear and a knowing sense of doom. If you can get down into that gut feeling, which a lot of us where we're we're in relationships where we're drawn, we're not connected to our gut. We're ignoring it. Right. Exactly. And often, you know, they say like, if you, if you like see someone across a crowded room and you get what my girlfriend and I used to call the crazy feeling, right? Yeah. Run the fuck away. That is not love. That is so (laughs) dangerous. That is, that is your gut telling you (laughs) get the fuck away. And it's exciting and it's, and it's, you know, it's, it's compelling and it's, and it's, you know, you're drawn to it and it's sort of an addictive thing. And it is like the classic sign of toxicity. Yeah. And I I would say that that part of you that's drawn to the person across the room and it feels exciting and familiar Mm -hmm. and like you want to go to it. That is the child part inside that was connected to mom who harmed or dad who harmed and paired love with injury. I like, I feel like I want to like say that again, (laughs) right? Like it is your child self. It is your unconscious, it's your subconscious child self that is being drawn to these people and will continue to be drawn to this type of person Mm -hmm. if you don't do the work yourself to to heal the original wound. Absolutely. Couldn't have said it better. And I I think one of the things that I wanted to put out there that we didn't get to talk about is IFS therapy, Mm -hmm. internal family systems therapy, which is one of the models that I use in individual and couples. Mm -hmm. And the idea is that you've got to go back and heal the wounds and unburden those parts that have taken on all of these protective mechanisms from injuries throughout the developmental process. And IFS, developed by Dick Schwartz, who's brilliant, um, is one of the best clinical methods to, to do that. Another is EMDR, and then there's sensory mode. There's so many things out there. So when you're looking for an individual therapist, you want to find someone who is trained in a bunch of trauma resolution models. If you, in fact, have come to the place where you accept that, yes, you were traumatized by abandonment, neglect, you know, you got physical needs met, but not emotional needs, or, you know, for sure, oh, yeah, I was physically abused, or I was psychologically abused, or I was sexually abused. You need to be working with someone who's trained in the upper echelon of trauma resolution. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yes. Okay. So, so, uh, trauma bonding. So, so that's sort of where, where are we in that conversation about trauma bonding? So like, that's sort of how you're like being drawn to these people, right? 
Absolutely. I would say that you're looking for, and this goes back to schema therapy. The theory is that human beings will create and look for and seek out familiar danger before they will choose an unfamiliar potential safety. Mm. So if what we know is a lack of safety and that's familiar to us, we will choose the familiar danger every day over the unfamiliar potential safety until we learn how not to. So breaking trauma bonding is learning the difference between familiarity and safety and undoing those parts of our brain that are wired to go towards danger. Yes. Yes. And then, you know, within a trauma bond, there's often this push and pull, right? Or at least... I mean, often that is the dynamic, right? It's the, it's yes, the love, it's the, it's the danger. Abuse. It's the love, it's the danger, right? It's the love, right. it's the taking right. it away. Um, and most people who can acknowledge that they've been in a cycle of abuse, they can say, oh, well, this thing happened. It was so intense. It was so, there was an incident. And then there's a small or long period of reconciliation mm-hmm. where the abuser tells you, okay, this will never happen happen again. I'm a changed man. I'm a changed woman. I'm so sorry. I'm going to do this penance. And then there's a period of calm, but then there's this tension building where the abuse is building up again. And it can't, this is a cycle cycle. and it goes on over and over. And really that's that push and pull that you're talking about. Absolutely. Yep. When I was growing up, there was this um, amusement park by my hometown and there's this ride called the scrambler. I don't know what it's called other places, but it's basically this ride that you get on and there's two or three of it that sit in it and it goes in and out and in and out and the cycle the speed picks up until you are sliding back and forth in a pretty painful yet exhilarating uh rotation Mm. that to me is what the cycle of abuse is it's like the scramble ride yeah yeah. I, kn- I mean, I know it so well as, you know, my listeners know that I mean, I've been, yes. I've, I think I've been in, 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 in many of these relationships because of my own history and my own trauma. Uh, yes. But yes. that one was the most intense I've ever been in. Um, Absolutely. And I, you know, that one just destroyed me on, on many, many levels. Um, you know, and one of the things that I, that I ask clients to do a lot is to actually map out their own cycle. Right. Because it's one mm-hmm. like we see the cycle of abuse. There's an infographic of it. You know, we post it in the group every once in a while and it's really clear. But what I like to do is is have people do their own map, their own cycle. Right. Like mm-hmm. where what is the th- what is the pattern that repeats in your relationship? Right. Absolutely. And I think, you know, once a person is ready to accept that, they can then move on to that next phase, which is looking back over the course of their lifetime and identifying the different cycles of abuse that they that they had with other significant individuals. So sometimes for a person, it was not mom and dad. Mom and dad were wonderful. They were loving. They provided. They had, you know, an education offered to them, but they had a coach or a teacher or a friend's uncle or a friend's dad or a friend's mother that was the abuser that interrupted the safe attachment they had with family that introduced them to the cycle of abuse. Yes. So it's so crucial for people to go back and look at different really significant relationships and people who have been abused love to deny that their abuser was significant to them. Yes. Well, I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't do that, but (laughs) right. I'm glad that you couldn't Kate. (laughs) 
<laughs> helped you dive headfirst into healing, which is wonderful. Yeah. But I, but I have seen it, right? It's like, Absolutely. I mean, I, I know that I, I mean, I've worked with clients who have said, you know, yeah, like, I mean, and I, I'll say like, you know, this sounds like some, some patterns from childhood. Let's talk about your childhood. Oh no, no. My childhood was great. Totally healthy. Okay. Well tell me about your mom. Oh, she blah, blah, blah. And what about your dad? Well, he wasn't really around and he was, he was pretty angry. So he was mostly not there. And you know, he hit me every once in a while and I'm like, oh, oh okay. <laughs> yeah. It's, that's exactly what I yeah. mean is that people, you know, they have a narrative of what they've told themselves that their childhood is. And sometimes until something really awful happens, you don't really go back and face that, oh, wait, there was this three-year period where things were pretty bad because my parent was traumatized by something and my relationship suffered as a result. Sometimes it's as simple as that. Yeah, You know, watching a parent lose a loved one, that's grief. And it is an environment that breeds trauma for anybody else who's in that relationship. So some of this stuff, it's not about blame. It's about owning the truth and the, you know, the ownership of events of things that took place and how that impacted you and being honest about it. Yeah. I think that's, I think that is great. I think that's a really important distinction, right? That like, for example, like if, if somebody died and one of your parents was, went into a, you know, a a grief, a, a deep grief, which probably necessitated them sort of pulling love, right? From your experience, right? Not being the loving connected parent that you were used to. That's a trauma that, that occurred in your bondedness with your mother. It's not your mom's fault. Exactly. I couldn't have said it better. We're not here to blame. We're not necessarily here to blame. I mean, you know, if, if you were, you know, physically abused or, you know, otherwise like, deliberately abused, then like, yeah, <laughs> we can, we can cast the blame and it doesn't even matter. Right. Cause it's right. now your, unfortunately it's your healing. And yeah. you know, well, and I think, I think that's one of those things that sometimes the responsibility of healing gets shifted to the person who was abused or perpetrated against. And at the end of the day, there is no expectation. You can choose to do the healing or not, right. but if you choose not to do the healing, you are in fact, going to reenact those patterns for certain with your partner and absolutely with any children you bring into this world. Yes. And this is so break the cycle. Break the cycle. And it literally, I mean, the recent studies have suggested that it only takes one generation to break the cycle. As long as absolutely. If we, do the, if we do the work, we do the hard work, we can stop it right now. If you look back at your family history and you just think that this is destined to keep going, it's not. You can stop it now. Right. And I think another thing that people, and I, again, I own, I have a bias here because I am a psychotherapist, but a lot of people would love to think that they don't have to be the one that goes into therapy. Mm. They can do it by becoming a runner and running as their outlet, or they can go to the gym and cycle on a bike, or they can become a CEO or whatever. There's all of these reasons why people are like, oh, well, I've done it this way. But I will tell you Mm -hmm. that if you haven't entered into therapy to work on some aspect of whatever it is that you're running away from, you are leaving stones unturned, which are absolute weaknesses you're setting up in all of your intimate relationships. And I, I can honestly say that going into therapy with the wrong person is not going to help you, 
but taking the time to find the right therapist. And that right therapist might be the same person for six months and then you've done your work with them and then you move on, you don't need therapy for two years and then something happens, you need to re-enter. So in different phases of our lives, we need different things. And therapy is the place where this work can be done efficiently and effectively. Amen, sister. Oh my God, I'm so grateful for this conversation. It's honestly, it's made me want to go back into therapy again. I mean, I'm in therapy right now. Um, and I adore my therapist, um, but it's made me actually want to do some some more specific trauma work. I'm grateful for this conversation too. Thanks for inviting me to be a part of the work that you're doing. You're healing so many people and you're creating a platform for change and growth and especially for women to pivot out of abuse cycles, which is, I mean, as I said to you, um, you and I were actually going through our divorces oh, yeah. at a a parallel time. We just didn't know each other. And if only I had had your group, because I literally, I felt so alone because nobody I knew was going through what I was going through. And while I knew people that had been through divorces, they weren't people I was going to be vulnerable with. And the only person I really had to rely upon was my therapist. A group like yours would have been a godsend, a life changing experience for me. And I I know it would have expedited my healing, which has taken some time. Yeah. I mean, I kind of feel the same way, which is why I started it (laughs) because I was like, this is what I didn't have. You have this beautiful gift of taking an injury and turning it into some gift to other people. And that's a magical thing. So I'm grateful. Thank you, honey. And I'm so grateful for your voice in the group and thank you. And in my life. So, so, so grateful. That feeling's completely mutual. All right, love. Thank you so much. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Divorce Survival Guide podcast. If you like what you hear, head on over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen in and leave me a review. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram at the Divorce Survival Guide. I'll see you next time. And until then, remember, you, my love, deserve to be happy.